Hey there, I'm Jeannie Faulkner, author of Common Sense Pregnancy, and this is CSP3. That's Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Power. Today, I want to let you all in on an industry secret, the inside world of labor and delivery nurses. We're a pretty unique tribe of women, and we spend inordinate amounts of time working one-on-one with other women during the most vulnerable times of their lives. When you come into our hospitals with contractions and concerns and leaking fluid and tears and in pain, we're the ones who are going to take care of you. One minute we're strangers and the next, if we're good at our jobs, we're your best friend. We'll be by your side throughout your hospital labor, delivery, and postpartum experience. We'll look after your family. We'll hold your hair if you throw up. We'll start your IV, get your pain meds, organize your epidural, help you keep track of your breathing and relaxation techniques, tell you when to turn over, rub your back, order your lab work, accompany you and assist in the operating room, be among the first to hold your baby, and then we'll chart and chart and chart some more on our computers. Much of what we do, the best part of our job, is called patient care. That's the part of our job where we're actually doing something for you, the mother in labor, and the baby you're delivering. Much of our job is what I call computer care. We're documenting every single thing we do for you, every moment of your labor, your baby's fetal heart tracing, our responses to what's going on with you, and yes, we're keeping track so there's a complete document for your medical record. But we're also creating a paper trail. We're creating our medical defense documents so that just in case something goes wrong and you sue us, We've got it all written down. It's kind of the scary flip side of being a healthcare provider. And as your nurse, our job is to make sure it all goes down into the record. So today, I'm not going to read anything from the book because I want to hop on the phone with today's guests. But I do hope you'll check out Chapter 9 in my book, Common Sense Pregnancy, and maybe especially the sections on who works in the maternity unit and the section I call Hygiene and Grooming for Labor, What Matters and What Totally Doesn't. That'll give you a pretty good idea of the range of duties a labor nurse provides. So today, I want to talk to a couple of women who've dedicated their careers to taking care of mothers. Labor nurses. Let's get them on the phone. Hi, Jeannie. Hi, Jeannie. How are you? Great. Good. Very good. So I've teed you guys up as labor nurses extraordinaire. Um, Nita, where are you? Are you in Virginia? Right now I'm at home in Virginia uh, near Manassas. Yeah. Close and to D.C. Sarah, you're just down the street from me in Portland, Oregon. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Well, thank you guys for joining us on the call today. There's just... People have so many questions about what our role is, you know, in their labor and birth experience. We have our ideas about what we hope for our patients, what we wish we could do, what we end up doing. And so I just think it's really valuable to get all kinds of voices on the podcast to share this experience. So let's start off by doing the numbers. Nita, how long did you work in labor and delivery before you retired? Uh, I worked postpartum five years and then about 27 years labor and delivery. And in that amount of time, is there any way that you know how many births you've attended, that you've been bedside or chairside or operating room for? 
I just, I couldn't put a number on it. I mean, it, it'd be like a thousand maybe, or I don't know, 500. <laughs> oh, heck, so many no, more than that, no. Nita. So many more than that. Yeah, well, like maybe five to 10,000. <laughs> I mean, think, I about, think about a night. If you, let's say you work three nights a week, 50 weeks of the year. Right. Okay. And say you do... How in one week, what would you say would be the average number of births that you would probably see? four? Okay, so that's 200 in one year, oh, and you okay. did that for 30 years <laughs> <laughs> about 27. Yeah, yeah, I know. One, one night I had five deliveries myself. Yeah, yeah, I've had nights like that. Yeah, and Sarah, how long have you been working labor and delivery? I've been working labor and delivery for over 10 years now, or maybe just about 10 years. But I started as a postpartum nurse as a new grad. So I've been in maternity since I got out of nursing school. Which was like a dozen years ago, and that just shocks the heck out of me. Oh, and, gosh. Yeah. yeah. And the reason is because Nita and Sarah are mother and daughter. Um, they haven't worked in the same hospitals, I don't think. Have yes, one, yes. Which one? We worked at GW together for about a year and a half. Oh, my God. Same shifts? Yeah. We, shifts. we scheduled ourselves together. Was she that were, I was full-time there. She was per diem, so she would work like one or two shifts a month with me. Was it fun? Tell me yeah, about it was, that. It was hysterical because she'd say, Mom, would you go start an IV in room four and the doctor would say, what did you just call her? <laughs> she goes, mom, because she's my mom. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. I love that. The patients and, loved it, too. The patients loved it. I bet they did. I bet they loved it. And then, Nita, you retired recently, right? Three years ago. Three years yes, ago. Yes, yes. How much do you love retirement? I really love retirement, but I really <laughs> miss my couples. I don't miss a lot of things about work, but I miss my couple. You know, I would have, I'd get an assignment, I'd get, you know, they'd say, give a report, you, they'd sign you, you meet your patient, and then you, you're 12 hours with that patient. Mm -hmm. You fall in love with the couple. Pardon me? You fall in love with the couple. You totally fall in love with them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just the most precious thing in the world. And, and I'll tell you, till my last shift I had a delivery on my last shift when the husband would cry mm -hmm. in joy you know just cry of joy I would bawl every time every time yeah. every it's single time so, it's just so sweet yeah 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 I just gotta wonder how many tears we've we've collectively shed just in happiness or sometimes in sadness it's yeah. funny um Craig and I watch uh, Call the Midwife. Yeah. And and Me we too. cry every episode. It's so sweet. And I was when I was working, I didn't really want to start watching that show. And, and now I just love it dearly. Uh -huh. It's such a sweet show. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Sarah, what made you want to follow in your mom's footsteps? Um, well, I've always, always wanted to be a nurse. There was... One semester in college where I thought I wanted to go into theater or like the background stuff, but that ended really quick. And um, I've always wanted to be a nurse. And I think probably what started that um, desire and interest was that when I was young, 
I don't know, how old was I, mom? Like the youngest maybe was like nine or ten. Um, but you, she would she would uh, take me to work and uh, because she'd worked there for so long and it was a little bit different back then, mm-hmm. um, I would get to put on scrubs and I would get to go in and watch deliveries. Of course, she would ask the patient if it was okay. And the doctor. And the doctor. Um, but I'd, you know, pretty much sneak on the unit and um, uh, spend the night there hang out with my mom and watch deliveries and watch her chart and watch, you know, look at the placenta and the refrigerator with all the placentas. And one time I got to watch a C-section. It was just really, really fascinating to me. And that, that has to be why, obviously, I wanted to become a nurse. And because it was never that I wanted to just be a nurse. It was that I wanted to be a labor and delivery nurse. But the funny thing is, I never, ever talked her into going into nursing. And the only clue I ever, ever found out that she wanted to be a nurse was one of the Girl Scout leaders when she was in high school or 10th grade or 11th grade told me, so Sarah wants to be a nurse. I go, what? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't didn't know that. (laughs) I I figured if I tried to encourage her to be a nurse, she'd run from it. But I was really happy when she chose that profession. Oh, yeah. It's the only thing I can imagine doing. I can't even imagine doing anything else. Did you ever think about doing midwifery? Either of you? I did at one point, but, you know, it's it was kind of before it was the big fad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a period of time there where they were few and far between, but they were trickling into the industry, and now they're far more commonplace. And our hospital doesn't really accept them. I mean, the hospital I, I worked at doesn't accept them. My but, hospital does, and I love the midwives. Yeah, I yeah. Love- I mean, I love the doctors, too. In fact, the hospital I'm working at now, I I love almost all of the doctors. They're really great. They're really nice. They're not like the old-time doctors where you have to get up and give them your seat or anything like that. They're just down-to-earth, you know, really work with the patients. But the midwives are awesome. I've, like, I look up to them. I definitely have thought many times about becoming a midwife, but for some reason, I'm a bit intimidated by it, so... I don't know. Yeah, it's a different job description for sure, Mm -hmm. Um, which kind of leads me to my next question that maybe we should have led with, but it's been so much fun getting here. We should describe the job description in a way that listeners who may not be moms or may not be moms yet um, can understand. So who wants to take that on? Uh, I'll do it. Okay. Or you can. No, go. Uh, job description. So I um, am the person who pretty much, um, in so many words, greets the patient, whether they are being induced or come in in labor or scheduled section, whatever it is. And I will um, fully admit the patient and, um, you know, explain to them everything that's going on, what we're going to do and figure out what the patient's um, and the husband's desires are for their experience. And so I pretty much provide an environment um, that uh, keeps the family, the the couple, um, safe, comfortable, at least my goal is to make them feel safe, comfortable, and have their experience as much as, as close to what they want. And um, I, um, you know, start an IV, I monitor the baby, whether it's continuous or intermittent, um, you know, check cervix, 
And when it gets time to close to delivery, then I call the doctor and, um, and then hopefully we have a beautiful or move or, or call the midwife, um, and then, uh, have a smooth, beautiful delivery. And then after that, I, um, take care of the mom postpartum and, um, and that's when all of the teaching begins with her and her baby. And so I'm pretty much with the patient from the beginning to the end until they go home. And so it's, it's really just a job that, um, is mostly providing safety and comfort to the mom because most of the time it's totally unknown and it's a very, can be a very scary experience. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about what an average shift is like. And I, I like to, you know, sort of preclude this with, for me, when I was working labor and delivery for all those years, and so many, many, many of them on the night shift, um, my shift sort of began with, you know, getting my kids to bed at home or getting them tucked into homework. And then I go to the hospital and it could be, you know, it's seven o'clock at night. Um, and you go from your car to hitting the floor, you change into your scrubs. Um, in, in my case, it was always in a big change room where all the nurses were stripping down to their underwear and pulling on fresh scrubs all together. Yep. Very That's intimate experience. Um, and then you go out and you get report. You find out what your assignment is. And you could go from, you know, the comfort of your own home to being in the operating room hanging blood in a matter of moments. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> Many a time. Many a time. So one of you guys take it from here. Tell me what it's like for you when you hit, when you well, hit the, the first, floor. The first thing I would do before I even went and changed my clothes is walk by the board just glance at the board. The patient board. <laughs> yeah, to see how many patients there were. And you just get an instant feeling of how your night's going to be. Yeah. If there's like 12 patients or if there's five patients. Right. So um, it's nice when you have one patient and it's one-to-one, <clears throat> but sometimes you have two patients. And um, busy, busy nights can be crazy chaotic, but you got to just stay focused. Right, right. Yeah, and just work it through. And then once you know who your you you know who the patients are in your unit and who your patient is going to be, then what? Then you go in and introduce yourself to your patient and and what would you what do you say to your your patient's mom? <laughs> I I was kind of corny. I would always say I'd stick my two fingers out and I go need a Amar at your cervix. Uh, 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 uh. I've said that myself a time or two. <laughs> yeah, I mean it was just corny yeah way to break the ice but um it was or i'd say you know just i'd introduce myself and and they they were always very special people and it was just a always always not there's always a situation where there's (laughs) you know different circumstances but for the most part it was uh very it was just you know you just meet a couple and start with them and tr- hopefully your, your unit was a little different because your unit was a, an LDR, which means labor delivery recovery. And my unit is an LDRP, which is labor delivery recovery postpartum. Right. So right. when I, when I get my patient, I, you know, I go through all of the, 
delivery, recovery, and then I most of the time keep that patient through the whole postpartum, um, you know, phase uh, until I go home, of course. And um, in your case, mom, you would, after two hours of recovery, transfer them um, to the postpartum. Yes. And you, you take on a whole nother labor, so you start it all over again with somebody else. Right, right. Yeah. We'd, we'd transfer the baby to the nursery, and they'd do the assessment, and then we'd get the baby back as soon as possible to do, um, you know, breast and, breast feeding immediately. Mm-hmm. We don't do that anymore. Yeah, we didn't no do that anymore is- either. We did LDRP, so as the labor nurse, we did all the initial assessments. and Oh, well, that's good. We did all yeah. the nursery care right there in the room. Especially now because there's so much research and studies <laughs> that show that the whole golden hour, two hours that – getting the baby to go straight skin to skin and really trying to be hands off as much as possible with the baby just to promote those first moments of bonding between the mom and the baby. So we'll go sometimes like two hours without weighing the baby or doing anything except for vital vital signs. Right. Yeah. And encouraging which, breastfeeding. Which is really different because when I started as a new grad, uh, it was like, you know, I did everything I could to get that baby away from mom so I could do the weight and do the meds and do the bath and everything as quick as possible to get that stuff done. And usually it wasn't it wasn't considered a bad thing back then. I know that there was a period of time towards the end of my um the, towards the end of the time that I was working at the bedside as labor and delivery nurse where we were highly pressured to get everything done on that mom and baby both of them in 2 hours. You had to get them all the yep. meds, all the weighing, first breastfeeding, up to the bathroom, bed stripped, meal ordered. And, you know, and that includes, that's from delivery. So that includes yeah. the immediate recovery yep. period, getting everybody cleaned up. I mean, it was just, and there was a lot of pressure to do that because at that two hour point, you needed to be prepared to take another patient. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they are respecting that time period a little bit more at your hospital, huh, Sarah? Yeah, they they are. I mean, there's still, if it's a really really <clears throat> busy night, mm-hmm. there still is a bit of pressure, and that pressure comes from the other staff mainly, mm-hmm. just because you know if you're taking your time and you know doing the stuff you know that you need to do and giving the patients the actual time that they desire, um, then you know your recovery can be go to almost four hours sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And, and it should. So and it should. It really, it really should be, and it's not fair for the patients. But, you know, if there's three patients waiting to be admitted, um, you know, it's not it's They you know, need a nurse, fair. too. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, Nita, over the years that you and I were both bedside labor and delivery nurses, we've seen a lot of changes happen in terms of policies, practices, and standards. And, and it sounds like, Sarah since you've worked at a couple of hospitals and you've been in the trenches for 10 years now that you're noticing it too. And Mm -hmm. I remember in the mid nineties when hospitals were really focused on providing evidence-based care that kept C-section rates as low as possible. Um, And then things really changed after, you know, in the new millennium. And now we're at a point where the C-section rate has been at almost 33% for so many years and we're not seeing much decline. We're seeing a fraction here and there, but we're not seeing much decline. 
So I just wanted to know if you guys would share your perspectives over the trends and challenges you've seen over your careers. I, I think it's the lawsuit phobia yeah. of the of the physician. Right. It's well, it's not the just the physician; it's the facility. Yeah. As well. And individual nurses too. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Remind me at some point in this conversation, I want to share. Well, I'll just do it now. Do you remember going to the fetal heart monitor strip review classes? They were given by a specific woman, and I can't remember her name. I don't want to say it here. But the bulk of it was that they would show you these strips that looked perfectly fine. And then the next thing you know, these strips look horrible, horrible. And, um, you know, all kinds of shit goes down. And inevitably, there's a horrible outcome and a terrible lawsuit. And the story goes on to tell you, and the nurse lost all her money and her house. And they just drilled this into you for hours and hours and hours so that you go back to work thinking, if I don't monitor and catch every single thing, I'm going to lose my security. They threaten us. Yeah. That's not just me, right? No, they, it was a very terrifying worry because you basically could be sued until the child's 21, I right. guess. Right. 18, I think. Or maybe 18, I don't know. But, but you know, I, it's you're still... Just you, trained, you're trained to, like, every single time you have any sort of bad experience, um, you're, you know, you're, you know, you're trained pretty much off the record to um, document everything journal. Because in four years, if there's a lawsuit, and all of a sudden they have a, um, what's that word? Deposition? Uh, yes, thank you. And they sit you down and, uh, um, you know, start asking you all these questions. How are you supposed to know what happened at 2.13 a.m. at this one exact moment? You know? And yeah. if you don't, that one little moment could bite you in the butt mm-hmm. or the hospital's butt. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's all about, you know, document, document, document. And if it's not documented, then it wasn't done. Exactly. Um, you know, so a lot of the times nurses will go home after a, quote, bad night and write down, you know, their just subjective experience about it. And just to kind of help them remember if something ever did come back up. I don't personally do that. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, I know nurses that do. I've, yeah. I've been um, told not to write stuff down because it could be subpoenaed in court. Oh, really? And I don't know. I, there's every if you if you work long enough, you'll probably have a deposition or two, and they're just brutal. They I are. Mean, it's just it's awful. It's, it's like yeah. eight hours of torture. Yeah. yeah, and it's inevitably it's not ever something that you did maliciously or something that you even necessarily had anything to do with it. It was right. just, as I said, shit went down and you were the name on the chart. You were the be- the nurse at the bedside. Yeah. Yeah. It and last- it happens so rarely, though. Seriously. I mean, if we're looking at hundreds and hundreds of births every year for each of us and over the course of our careers, those kinds of situations only happened sporadically and rarely. And yet our entire practices were directed at those moments, the potential for those moments. It's scary for us. It's Mm -hmm. scary for the patients. And in very large part, it's directly related to the C-section rate. Well, you know, and and also, you know, it's uh, just a step aside from the C-section point. And the other thing is that um, the charting 
you know, every everything, like I said, if it's not done, if it's not charted, then it's not done. And, um, you know, I could be the best hands-on nurse and done everything, take care of that patient, and I did everything right. But if I did not document one thing from that night, like if I missed one thing out of my night, then that, that you know, could ruin the whole case or whatever, you know, defense of, um, you know, if something did come up. And so what happens is the hospitals drill, 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 drill in our heads and make us do education and health streams and health streams after health streams, which are online training, um, to remind us to chart everything. And so we end up spending more than 50% of our time charting. Which is what I call computer care, not patient care. Right. Or insurance care, which is what we're doing. That two hours of recovery, you know, the reason it's you feel so hustle and bustle is because not only are you doing two hours of recovering that mom and teaching her stuff with the baby and making sure that she's not having too much bleeding and helping her with breastfeeding and everything, you're also doing your catch-up charting from the delivery and the labor, and now you're charting everything. So it's, it's you know, if you could just focus on the patient, it would be so much nicer. I mean, obviously you have to document somewhere, but the fact that we have to document the way that we need to just to kind of legally protect ourselves in the hospital totally changes the dynamic of patient care. Absolutely. You know, I, I know that we were trained that at the point of delivery, you should have one hand on the mouse or the keyboard and the other hand on your patient <laughs> because yeah. you were supposed to be charting in real time, you know, patient pushing, right. patient crowning, you know, whatever was happening needed to be charted in real time. Yeah. Well, I don't care days, who you are. It's not possible. In the old days when we had the strip flowing out all the time and we were able to jot um, IV and, uh, you know, terbutaline given. Right. It's just write little notes on the strip. And that way you're really doing good patient care. And then when it's all over and done, you chart off the strip. Well, that's not allowed anymore. I know. That's how I trained originally, too. And that made a world of difference because you weren't dividing your attention. You were doing your job. You were taking care of your patient. You were focused on your patient. And then you take a second and you scribble down the blood pressure. And then you go back. And then, you, you know, you do patient care at one point. And then you do charting separately. But that's a huge no, no now. Yeah. Yeah. Sarah, didn't you mention to me that charting is so sophisticated now that um, the hospital administrators or the IT people can tell what room you're in. They can tell if you're trying to catch up chart yeah. from a different patient's room. Definitely. And that, and that's one thing that they're constantly doing. They do not want us charting at the desk ever. Um, so they can look at what room, what computer you are at and when you are charting it and whether it's real time or not, you know, so, you know, and that's something that the, the lawyers look at. Right. And yet, doesn't it feel like an intrusion? I mean, like if we're taking right after delivery, we know mom isn't bleeding. We know the baby is fine. We know everybody is happy. You just want to step out of the room and give the family 20 minutes to be alone. Well, and not only that, even if everything's going smooth and mom's comfortable and everything's going great, you know, then there's the nurse that's just standing at the computer that and I would feel as a patient if I didn't understand that the nurse wasn't doing her job. She was ignoring me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know? It's and, so frustrating. So it, it is frustrating. It's, yeah. 
it's it's a bummer that it has to be that way. Yeah, yeah. People don't really realize that electronic documentation isn't actually doing much to improve patient care. Yeah. It's improving accountability for the insurance company, for the medical legal system, um, and it's creating a paper trail that's defensible in court. But when you really break that apart, that has nothing to do with the care of your patient. Right. It's so frustrating. Yeah. yeah. Well, as far as um, the C-section, I, uh, you know, it is it is pretty much a. Vi- I believe it's a vicious cycle, and you know, I mean, I don't really know um, what you'd like to talk about it or to talk about regarding that, but I, I do feel that C-sections and the reason that the rates are staying the way that they are at is because of worrying what could happen. Right. A doctor and, told me a patient never sues for the C-section where the baby was fine. They sue right. for the C-section you didn't do where the baby wasn't. So a doctor is going to err on the side of extreme caution and do the C-section even when, you know, 95, 99% of the time the baby comes out just fine. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I, I get that. Nobody wants a bad outcome. But what we're seeing over time with the C-section rate is that um, we aren't guaranteeing good outcomes. And in fact, we're doing harm. We're increasing the national maternal mortality rate exponentially. Um, you know, it, we have increased the C-section rate in this current generation of mothers by 500%. And that's, mm-hmm. that's madness. But it's lawsuit driven and it's also the way that doctors are trained and it's because we get in there and intervene in areas where we really don't need to. And it's because we monitor continuously to have that legal documentation and, you know, stuff happens on the strip that's no big deal. But if you know that it's potentially going to be used in court, you're going to interpret that more ominously or threateningly than if it happened and you just didn't see it because stuff happens all the time. Yeah. There's blips and wiggles on those fetal heart monitors that, you know, if we left alone or if we didn't know about it, nobody would be any the wiser and nobody would be at any harm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they say that, you know, when once you see the variable or a D cell on a monitor, you have to intervene, you have to act. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they say, you know, these babies probably have these variables through the whole pregnancy. Right. But once you see it, now you have to do something about it. Right. So there is a big... Um, pressure or or policy change in most hospitals now, which is directed through ACOG, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, that intermittent monitoring, which means you put the monitor on for a little while and then you stop and you put it on occasionally and then you stop, that that's more appropriate for the majority of low-risk mothers. Yeah. And that that's, that's even, wonderful. Yeah. And that just that measure alone, um, they hope will have a significant reduction in c-section rates done for you know lousy looking strips mm-hmm. yeah. so just on a different totally different topic what is a perfect shift like for you <laughs> perfect perfect shift for me would do um to go on the unit and um all your friends are a- working all my friends are working. That's right. <laughs> and uh, you, 
uh, see that there's a couple labors. I, I really enjoy taking care of um, women who are in labor and um, versus, you know, taking a uh, like a if I take a group of postpartum patients, meaning a three women with their babies. Mm-hmm. couplets. Um, though I like doing that, I like it a lot more these days that I've been doing it because there's a lot of teaching and bonding. I, there's something really special about the labor. Ooh, we've got dogs on this podcast, folks. They're joining us in the conversation. <laughs> I don't mind. My dog is asleep on the bed and would love to chime in. I locked my dogs out of the office. Good thinking. Yeah. <laughs> So I used to like labors too, especially if it was, um, I, I liked getting them at like three to four centimeters and then knowing that you'd probably get your delivery, but, and then you do your, your, I liked doing one patient labor per shift. So you had to time it right. Otherwise you'd end up doing one patient labor and then they deliver and then you get another patient labor and that's pretty exhausting. And of course, many, many nights you did that, you know, patient after patient after patient after patient, and you went home like a wrung out sponge, so tired. (laughs) Sorry. Well, we, I would say my favorite shift was um, either admitting a patient and following them through to delivery. And and then I didn't mind starting a new induction in the morning. I mean, Uh it was just... I like to stay busy, otherwise the twelve-hour night would never end. Yeah, right. But you, you wanted to be able to give good care to your patients, so you didn't really want to have three patients. Right, exactly. My favorite type of shift is when I'm at the end of the shift. I want to ask my patient if I can friend her on Facebook, because which I rarely do because uh-huh. I feel like it's probably inappropriate, and I don't want to make the patient feel like they have to say yes. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But, you know, just that I've, you know, bonded with this couple during this really intense, beautiful experience and, you know, that like I kind of at the point could, you know, be friends with them. Yeah. You're part of the family. Right. Yeah. Right. And that and to be honest, whenever you go through that, it's usually that's the way I end up feeling Mm -hmm. at the end. It's just so special and. You know, you just feel like a love for these people. Yeah. Yeah. I miss that part of the job. That's what I miss. People, you know, will ask me, since I haven't worked um, in the hospital for a number of years now, they'll ask me, oh, don't you just miss the babies? Yeah, sure. I miss the babies, but more, I miss the couples. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That was the best part. Yeah. What do you think? special bond. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think women need to know to have the best possible birth experience in the hospital? I would say just to come in with as much of an open mind as they can. Because it's usually, you know, and I don't mean to sound, you know, like a bad person saying this, but it's usually the people that come in that are dead set on a specific way that they want their birthing experience to be. And a lot of the time, um, I mean, I don't know how honest I can be, you know, as from a labor and delivery uh, nurse, exp- um, you know, uh, perspective, but I love taking care of 
quote Bradley patients or the patients that come in that really, really want to do it natural because most of the time they're really strong and what they end up doing is so impressive to me. Mm-hmm. And I really, really, really enjoy working with those patients and I try to make their experiences, you know, smooth and comfortable as possible. But from a labor and delivery nurse perspective, when a patient walks in with a an ironclad birthing, birth plan, birthing plan, and, and right off the bat, they're like, you know, have this kind of defense up, like, don't touch me, like, don't, don't mention the word pain, don't do any of this. I mean, it, it kind of sets them up for the like, okay, the birth plan equals the, you know, consent for C-section, and it's, you know kind of a joke that the nurses have and I I, I do feel bad but, saying that because But I've, let's explain that because I think that 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 is absolutely true for me too and I bet for Nita and every other labor nurse but I want our listeners to recognize that it's not that we feel like they can't do it or that we don't respect their birth plan it's the rigidity that right. that the patient comes with that usually yep. equates to fear they're afraid yeah. of us and it's yes. really hard to make that loving bond and for us to be able to take care of them as patients if mm-hmm. we start the relationship off with, don't do this, don't do that, absolutely never do this, I will never accept this and that. But when we have our patients who come in with birth plans saying, here's how I've prepared, here's what I hope for, um, right. I want your help to be able to facilitate this and achieve this. But then they also recognize that you know, babies don't always read those birth plans and they have a say in how this birth goes down too. And we have to have respect for the entire process. So that's, Mm -hmm. we make that joke, but I don't want our readers to think like, oh God, they've got a birth plan. Just sign them up for the OR. Cause it's not the birth plan. It's the rigidity. And if there's nothing else that I could ever tell a listener about parenting is be flexible right from the get go. That's exactly it. Be yeah. flexible. Be and flexible. You're, you're, you're your own advocate. So if uh, you have, you know, in your head that you don't want Pitocin and you really would like to do the most natural way and a provider comes in and starts recommending something that you are not comfortable with, it is your right and your mm-hmm. place to ask all the questions that you need to feel comfortable with that recommendation. Because if you don't want Pitocin, you don't have to have Pitocin. Right. Um, you know, and you're 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 there to make the final decision. Yeah. Most um, people don't know that. Most women don't right. know that actually the choice is theirs. It totally is their decision. Yeah. We are here to to make recommendations of what we think might be the best next decision. And um, if you are not comfortable with that, then you ask more questions. What, tell me why you think that we need to do this. Are there any other options? Instead of breaking my or uh, starting Pitocin, is my baby in a good place to break water instead? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's lots of different things that you can try. Foley balloons or Cervidils, things that are a lot less invasive than Pitocin or what something that the patient might have not wanted in the beginning. Right. Or what we're starting to see little inklings of in some hospitals is um, recognition that Pitocin isn't necessary in a lot of situations. We don't always have to speed it up. We just don't. We don't have to speed it up. So, so many times I know doctors will 
say, oh, well, she's been three to four centimeters for so long now. I mean, things are just not going well. It's not going fast enough. Start some Pitocin. And most women will internalize that with the concept that, oh, there's something wrong with me. My, My body won't make enough of its own oxytocin, so I need this. Well, that's not necessarily true. And in most cases, probably isn't. Because your body would kick in and deliver that baby in its own good time, thank you very much, if we didn't have the clock ticking. So, you know, sometimes, though, there are darn good reasons to push it along. And that's what Pitocin is for. But women don't recognize that they have this decision-making power. And I think so many of them are getting the message, you're doing it wrong. We're going to have to fix you. And I hate that message. It's just, it shouldn't be that way. I, I times whispered to my patient you have the right to refuse this oh i do the same thing yeah i do it very sneaky way so it doesn't sound like well the nurse told me i don't you know but uh you know i i i i get the message to my patient that if you are not comfortable with this we don't have to do it absolutely which can often often lead to a confrontation with a doctor and um i was going to ask you each if you've ever outright confronted a doctor who you knew was wrong in their approach to managing their patient. It's a scary um, little line that you walk on because I I had a little uh, prime first time mom, um, Spanish speaking patient. Um, She's like five foot and she came in closed cervix and she wasn't, she wasn't quite due maybe two days before her due date. She wasn't past dates and her contractions kind of petered out. And I called the doctor and he said, start pit. And I was just, I was so, so upset because I knew what was going to happen. And I, I just, the words came out of my mouth without Mom, did you halt on. You, and I said, you're setting her up for a C-section. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, he, he, I got written up for it. I mean, he went to my manager and it was a big deal. And she, of course, she had a C-section. Mom, when you were um, nursing, did you guys ever go with um, rely on the Bishop score or use that as far as like as a resource of when it was appropriate to do an induction or use Pitocin or anything like that? That was kind of way back then. (laughs) Yeah, that Bishop score didn't start getting utilized until, you know, after 2000. I mean, it was around. And what Bishop score is for our readers who don't know is it's a way of evaluating the cervix to determine whether it's ripe and ready to dilate. And so if you start Pitocin or do an induction on a patient who has um, a low Bishop score, um, like the seven, yeah, then you're pretty much guaranteed that it's not going to work. The cervix Mm -hmm. isn't ready. Even if you pound it with hours and hours of Pitocin, it's not going to work, which is why Nita was saying that sets you up for a C-section because it happens all the time that women have Inductions that don't progress. Their body wasn't ready. Um, That's right. And then they end up in the C-section room. And now you've flooded their body with 24 hours of Pitocin, and those little receptors are flooded and can't, you know, and now you're set up for a postpartum bleed. Right. Right. Yeah, it's, yeah. So there's a strong push. It's nice for your followers to know that they do have a right to refuse yeah and, and I, don't, I don't mean refuse good advice you know like if if the patient's heart tones are kind of flat no variability ruptured membranes there's all kinds of reasons you want to get this baby out but 
if it's real early, they don't have to have Pitocin. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah. most of the time, hopefully the patients are, are working with a doctor that they've built a, their own rapport and relationship with and do trust that, you know, the doctor is going to make the best decision for them. Yeah. Doctors aren't evil that, you know, they're, they're definitely out for, you know, looking out for the best for their patients and their babies. Absolutely. Um, That's what we're all in this for. It's just that so many of us kind of get blindsided once we get in there and we realize that, yeah, we're looking out for the best, the best for our patient and their babies, mm -hmm. but we're also covering our ass. Yep. Big time. C-Y-A. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So I can think of many times where I've gone nose to nose with a physician or midwife where I just absolutely disagreed. And the the confrontation can be very um, complicated. It can be yeah. effective. It can be uh, a, a, a conversation where the nurse and the provider um, each present their viewpoint and you come to some understanding. Mm-hmm. Or it can be <laughs> a smackdown authoritarian uh, argument where, you know, one or the other digs in their heels. And I think that for the most, I I don't know, maybe it's a generalistic thing to say, but I think that usually that authority, that power is driven by the physician rather than the nurse. Though I've worked with many a nurse who have just been as stubborn as could be and weren't willing to look at anything else. I've worked with far more doctors who said, it's my way or the highway, and then go to our nurse manager and complain. Yeah. That nurse said this and that, this and that. And even if you were right, you still got hassle or pressure from your nurse manager and hospital administration because, and this is a hard truth, doctors generate income from the hospital. That's right. Nurses don't. Nurses are dispensable. Mm Mm-hmm. Doctors are money makers. A do- if a doctor leaves, then all of his patients go with him. Right. Or her. So, yeah. So we're, we're in this weird dichotomy where we are our patient's first and best advocate. It is our job to go nose to nose with a doctor who we think is um, going against the patient's wishes or providing substandard medical care or whatever reason. Um, that's our job. And yet... When we do that, too often we get into this power struggle where we don't come out the winner in this fight. So what do you guys say? How big an issue is that doctor-nurse authority dynamic in terms of patient outcomes where you work? Uh, My hospital is a a bit smaller. Mm -hmm. Um, so the, the amount of doctors and midwives, you know, versus, I mean, it's, we are all know each other very well, basically. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I don't see it as much in the hospital. And I think, um, a lot of it is because, uh, the doctors know that if a nurse is really sand to them, probably a reason for it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I really haven't seen too much pushback from the doctors and midwives. Um, I mean, there's a couple things that I don't necessarily agree with as far as certain practices that some of the providers Mm -hmm. do, but it's just the way they only practice. Yeah. Um, So, 
you know, there's there's been little things here and there where I'll, where I'll say something. Um, but it hasn't um, been a big issue. I know that for no. me, it's been the, the biggest issue at the large teaching hospitals that I've worked at where we get the youngest, most inexperienced doctors. They come in with a, a lot of um, <laughs> undeserved arrogance sometimes. And they hit the floor knowing that somebody has to be in charge here. And they try to make sure that it's them. Um, and they do that sometimes by discounting our range of experience. And um, so it's, you know, oftentimes the younger, more arrogant doctors that you go toe-to-toe with hardest. I think I feel total opposite. I think the all the times I can remember having an issue with a doctor where there was something, some sort of confrontation or discussion, um, it's always been... And I'm not trying to sound, you know, that I'm pointing any fingers towards a specific type of doctor, but it's always been the older men. The, the older men, men, yes. Old men. Yes. You know, the yeah. doctors that are getting close to retirement, maybe 10 years or from it, and they just are old school doctors, and they don't want to be questioned. Right. And they've been doing it the same way for decades, and it worked for them all this time. And, and, and you know, Jeannie... There's a doctor that we both worked with at the hospital we worked at together. Yeah. That's still pulling the same tricks. The same <laughs> dangerous misogynistic I, tricks. I, I just talked I just talked to a coworker and and she said he's still doing it. But it, it's just funny there are doctors though that you that you have wonderful relationships with and you can read each other's minds and yeah. just yeah. and it's a true partnership in the labor room. Yeah, it's just a, it's just smooth moving and it's just everything's wonderful. So Yeah. Yeah. Those those are what I those are the ones I loved. I loved those too and that is the most of it. And then there'll be that one. And you know what? Yeah. Except for I had an I I can think of two or three of that one. I specific doctors that just make my skin crawl. I'm so angry with them. But I worked with a midwife who hit the unit right out of midwifery school, having been trained in a large teaching facility. And she had the highest C-section rate on the unit. And she was very authoritarian. And even though we knew she was new and scared and she didn't want to wait for labor to progress naturally, she wanted to hit the OR. um, She she was tough to work with. We would end up doing chain of command where I go to the charge nurse and then I go to the nurse manager and then I go to the head of the department and say, what the hell? And um, (coughs) that particular doctor created a lot of waves or midwife, a lot of waves. She's not doing uh, that anymore. (laughs) Don't the doctors get dinged for having too many C-sections? I don't know if they do now. They certainly didn't when I left. Half a dozen I, I years ago. Because I've heard doctors mention, oh, goodness, I've done so many C-sections recently. I I need to drop my C-section numbers, like implying something negative something is going to happen. If yeah, I think they, they, they take them and have board meetings. Yeah, but and I think I, that, I, that what something. Sarah's talking about is that there is some sort of um, – some sort of payment reduction that they might get through their insurance providers. I should I should find that out and then have that ha- talk about that subject. That would be really interesting too. 
Yeah. Yeah. So we've been on the phone for quite a while, and um, I want to ask two more questions of you. Um, Considering that 99% of women give birth in hospitals, and the U.S. ranks very poorly um, in terms of global maternal health outcomes, what do you think hospitals need to change? The, the quick jump to intervention. Yes. Nita, what do you think? Uh, informing the patient. I, I don't know. It's really tough. Hopefully having the patient more well-informed when they come in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because health really is in the hands of the mother. She just doesn't always know it. My friend just had a baby. Well, it was a year ago now. Um, She had a postpartum hemorrhage and almost died. I'll tell you who after, mom. And um, uh, she said to me, without any medical background, I believe this happened to me because they had me on Pitocin. I think she may have called it something like potassium or something. Yeah. Um, You know, like that just shows that, you know, she doesn't know a lot of medical stuff. But she even knew that the reason this happened to her was because they intervened more than they should have. Way more. And she, you know, and she was trying to speak up for herself. I need you to check me. I feel like I might be ready to deliver. And they were like, no, 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 no. We don't want to check you because we just checked you and you could be, you know, we don't want to get you infected. And um, she thinks she was complete for a few hours. And in addition, they had her on Pitocin for like 13 hours. And she lost a lot of blood. Buckets. A lot, a lot. They, they, the doctor told her she was, could have been minutes away from no longer being here. Yeah. Um, and we see so, more and more and more of that. Yes. Yeah. It, and, it, and I mean, it, you know, it's one of the reasons why I really like working with the midwives. Like, no offense to doctors, because I, especially my group of doctors, but the midwives really try to be hands off. Yeah. As little intervention as possible. Just let it happen. And, just let it happen. And it usually is exactly what happens. It just happens. Yeah. Nice and smooth and beautifully. Yeah. Well, ladies, I think that this is where we're going to say goodbye. Okay. I really thank you both for being. Makes me miss my work. I know. Me too. Yeah. I want to thank you both for being brave to tell it like it is and yep. outspoken. And <laughs> and uh, I'll talk to you both soon. Okay. Thank okay. you. And it's I've a just, wonderful line of work. All those, all those patients out there that are listening to this, it's just, it's a really, really exciting time. And I think my one piece of advice is that this is supposed to be a happy experience. And though it's mostly filled with pain, it really is supposed to be a happy experience that you remember forever. And you are able to lean on your nurse because that's what she's there for. If you have questions, ask your nurse. And always, always, always ask questions if you're not comfortable with something. I love it. Sarah, those are the best parting words. Yes. Thanks, Jeannie. And we love your book. Oh, thanks, Nita. I appreciate that. (laughs) Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Okay, bye-bye. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. Mama said. My guests today were Nita and Sarah. 
We're not using last names because these lovely ladies wanted to be able to speak super frankly about the work we do. Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Power is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios in Portland, Oregon. You can find my book, Common Sense Pregnancy, on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, and everywhere books are sold. You can see more of my work on my website, JeanFaulkner.com. Got questions? Email me, Jean at JeanFaulkner.com. Thanks for joining me on CSP3, and please subscribe, share, and leave us a rating on iTunes if you feel like it. Thanks for joining me, and let's talk again next week. Yes, my mama said-